Acts 13, 13 through 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them, by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God has raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit.
Thanks, Emily, for reading all those tough words, names of uh, locations. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you don't recognize me, it is um, partly or probably because uh, our lead pastor, uh, Chris Walker, is on sabbatical this summer. So he usually preaches uh, three out of four Sundays a month, but he is gone for the summer. Uh, we sent him to rest and to focus on his marriage and his family and uh, vacation, as well as some professional development things. And so we're very glad that he uh, gets to take the sabbatical. I think it'll be good for our church as well. But uh, that's, that's where he is, if you're kind of wondering where he's at. And maybe you were gone uh, last Sunday as we uh, commissioned him. But uh, like Emily and Peter said, uh, we are in the book of Acts right now in a sermon series that's going to last the entire 2019. We're right about in the middle of it right now. And uh, as Emily read from Acts 13, 13 through 52, we're going to be looking at uh, how true freedom comes apart from the law, apart from the Old Testament law. And so uh, if you are just joining us right now, we're in the middle of the book of Acts. Uh, so far in the book, it's, it's narrative, it's, it's theological history. So, so far we've seen uh, Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension. He's now in heaven sitting uh, to the right of God the Father, ruling, and his disciples now, the church, have received the Holy Spirit and are now being sent to spread, to, uh, spread this good news, this gospel, the good news that Jesus has died in our place, that he has risen victoriously, that his spirit has come, and they are spreading that. So this all began uh, mostly in Jerusalem, and so, uh, which, is, which is in Israel. And then persecution arose against the church, and that forced uh, the thousands, there's thousands of converts at this time, forced them to scatter throughout the ancient world. And so, so far, that's been what has been happening. So these persecuted Christians are, are fleeing Jerusalem, going back to their own homes and their own cities and their own nations. But now, starting uh, chapter 13, there's this uh, shift in the book. And now for the first time, the gospel is expanding not via persecution, but rather through uh, the church sending missionaries, the church sending church planters to go throughout the ancient world to spread this gospel, uh, to convert people, to plant new churches, to raise up and appoint new leadership within those churches, and then to move on to another city or another area. So last week, uh, this just started. So last week, we read about a church that's in this uh, city of Antioch, um, which is in Syria. There's another Antioch we're going to talk about. And so this church, uh, they're praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. And so uh, they send Paul and Barnabas from this Antioch, and they go uh, to the island of Cyprus. We read about that last week, preaching the gospel in, in multiple cities here. And now this week, they came up here to Perga, and now they're landing here in this Antioch, which is in Pisidia. So that's what's going on in our passage so far today. And what we're seeing is that Paul has a unique uh, church planning strategy. Okay? He's not just going, uh, he's not just you know, putting up his sails and his sailboat and wherever the Holy Spirit kind of takes him that way that he's going to go. But rather, uh, the Spirit is leading him, but he has this strategy as he's planting churches. And this is his strategy. Every time we, uh, pretty much every time, if not every time, we see this happen. It starts with Paul choosing to go to a city. He goes to an urban center or cultural center. And he preaches the gospel there. And it's usually in the context of a synagogue. So synagogues are just a, a Jewish place of worship. And so he goes there not only because he's Jewish and because Christianity comes out of Judaism or because Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish faith. That's all part of it. But also part of the, the service in a Jewish synagogue is they actually open it up to uh, fellow rabbis or visiting rabbis or teachers to actually stand up and give a word. And we see that happen in today's passage. So there's this like, unique thing set up in uh, the ancient world that allows Paul to have an opportunity to preach the gospel to people and uh, especially people who already believe the Old Testament, who already have the background knowledge that he's going to build upon. So he goes to a city, he preaches the gospel in a synagogue by God's grace, 
the gospel lands on people's hearts. The Holy Spirit uh, opens people's eyes and, and people are converted to Christianity. Paul trains these people up. He trains up leaders and through the Spirit appoints new leaders to, um, uh, to lead and to care for and to shepherd these churches, uh, pastors and, and elders and overseers. And then he actually leaves. Okay? He doesn't just stay there for 10 years and disciple these same believers until they're really mature in the faith, as we might think he would maybe do, but rather, after just a, uh, a few years or sometimes even just a few months, he trusts the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's going to continue to uh, mature and, and, and sanctify these people, and he moves on to a new place, onto a new city. And this just gets repeated over and over and over again. We're going to see this happen again and again throughout the book of Acts until we end uh, in December. In today's passage, Paul and his team go to another urban area, another cultural center, uh, knowing that what's going to start in that city, in that urban area, is going to spread out to the surrounding areas, which is part of his strategy. So the next stop is now this, uh, another city called Antioch, which is in Pisidia. So Paul and his crew, they, they show up there, they preach the gospel at a synagogue. And what we're going to look at is uh, what Paul is, is doing here. And so maybe you picked up on this, maybe you didn't, but it's important to see that Paul knows his audience really well. He knows who he is speaking to. He knows what their values are, what, what they believe, what uh, prior knowledge they have, what's going to move them, what's going to persuade them. And we've seen this before in Acts. We've seen multiple sermons already in Acts given by Paul and others, Peter, Stephen, uh, other um, apostles and disciples. So I've seen this before in Acts, and we're going to continue to see it throughout the whole book. That depending on the audience, depending on the circumstance and who's being preached to, the sermons actually look quite different. So always the gospel is preached, right? Always the, the center of the gospel, that we are sinners, that we are in need of a Savior, that Jesus lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose again, conquered sin and death, sent the Spirit, that forgiveness of sin and eternal life is possible. That's always in there. But then other aspects, other facets, or other fruit of the gospel uh, get brought up depending on who is preaching and who the audience is. So always the same gospel, yet different details or different focuses or different facets in order to persuade a particular audience. So if you compare all 20, nearly 20 sermons we see in the book of Acts, they're all different. They all have the gospel at the center of them, but they show and highlight and point to different facets of the gospel depending on who the audience is and the setting. So whether it's religious rulers or Jewish people, whether it's Gentiles or Samaritans, fellow Christians, whether it's pagans, whether it's Greeks, whether it's kings or Roman centurions, the sermon is different. Trying to persuade them and speak their language and speak to their hearts and their motives, their values, and their problems that they are facing. But not only is this important to Paul and Barnabas, but it's also important to us as well. So if we as Christians are called to be missionaries, just like Paul and Barnabas are here, we also need to know who our audience is. So that's someone in our classroom, someone on our sports team, in our family, our neighborhood, our workplace, we need to know who we're sharing the gospel with. So whether you're teaching a class or whether you're having a conversation over a beer at a happy hour or whether you're uh, sitting beside someone in their backyard over a campfire, we need to know who we're talking to. What are their values? What is their story? What do they need to hear about Jesus? What do we need to persuade them about? So just like Paul and Barnabas are doing this here, we need to ask ourselves these same questions. We need to start by asking, what do these people know? What is their background? Do they know the Bible? Do they know salvation history? Or are they completely oblivious to it? Have they never even heard about the Bible or about Jesus? That's going to depend, uh, or depending on the answer to that question, is going to change greatly what we share with them. If you notice in today's sermon, Paul is, is preaching to Jewish people, right, in a synagogue, who have gone to a synagogue to worship. So he summarizes over a thousand years of Jewish history in like one paragraph because he knows they already know this. Or I can say these events and these people's names and they will know exactly what I am saying. 
So again, we need to ask ourselves, what do these people know? Do they know a lot about the Bible or very little? Do they know a lot and their hearts, their hearts are hardened? Or maybe do they know a lot, but they're believing a false gospel because they're from a different religion who kind of believes the Old Testament? Um, and we also need to ask, not just uh, what do they already know, but we also need to ask, what common ground do you have? Think about this person. Are they a friend? Do you have lots of social capital with them? Can you be a bit more direct and uh, uh, more pointed? Or are they a stranger or someone that you know is kind of hostile to the faith? So you have to be incredibly gentle or patient in how you're talking to them. Do they believe in the spiritual? Do they believe that there's a God or, they are, or are they strongly against that? What do they think the point of life is? What, what are they working really hard to accomplish in their life? What brings meaning? Do they think that the world's broken? We need to ask these questions so that we know what common ground we have with them and can build off of it, just like Paul did in our passage today. And then finally, we need to ask, what are their greatest values? What do they think is the most important thing in life? Or, and or, what are their greatest needs right now? So depending, if someone asks a question about the problem of evil or why is there suffering in this world, your answer is going to look and should look very different if it's someone that has a kid who's dying of cancer or a person who's just in a, in a college philosophy class and kind of just wondering, right? Your answer should be very different. So depending on a person's greatest values in their life or their greatest needs will depend on how we share the gospel, how we bring truly good news to them. So if someone's hurting because they just got dumped or because they just uh, lost their job, we can share the aspect of the gospel that reminds us that in Christ we have an identity that we can never lose. As well as we have a God that will love us no matter what, even if we don't perform or even if we're not climbing in our career. Or maybe someone who is an abuse victim or is the victim of some type of injustice, we can show, we can show them that in the gospel we, we have a God who will judge evil. That even if that person doesn't get justice in this life, the gospel promises that there will be true and good and final justice. And not only that, but there's good news that for that person who is on the receiving end of abuse or injustice, that through God, through the gospel, and the power of his spirit, healing is actually possible, and restoration, and even reconciliation. Or maybe someone who is fighting tirelessly against racism and against racial injustice, we can share with them that in the gospel, God has always wanted to save the nations. He's always wanted to send his good news of salvation and forgiveness of sin to every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. And that he's the one that actually designed ethnic diversity. And that together, all different ethnicities together, uh, can most fully image and resemble our God, which humanity is supposed to mirror. We're supposed to be imagers of our God. So we could go on and on, but the point is here that we need to see what people's greatest values and needs are and use those to show how the gospel is really what they're looking for and is really what is ultimately good news for them, just like we saw Paul do to this uh, Jewish and God-fearing context in Antioch. So like Paul and Barnabas, if you're a Christian here today, you're called to this same ministry of spreading the gospel to others in unique ways so that they see that the gospel is especially good news to them, to their context, to their circumstance, to their trouble that they're going through. And that's going to mean that we are going to need to be good listeners. We're going to need to listen well to people who are struggling and who are sharing these things with us as we are in relationship with them. And then do the hard work of making the connections, of, of, of seeing how the gospel is actually what they really need, what's really going to bring healing and freedom and forgiveness and hope in their lives. All right, back to Paul and Barnabas. While, Parnum, while Paul and Barnabas were sent by the Holy Spirit, and are, they're on this journey, they're teaching the true gospel, you might be thinking, well, nothing's going to stand in their way, right? God's sending them, and they're uh, preaching this gospel that God wants to be sent across the world. We saw this in Acts 1, the very beginning chapter of this book. Jesus says, my disciples are going to spread this good news 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of this to the ends of the earth. So you might think if Jesus is behind it, the Holy Spirit's empowering it, if it's God's plan, well they're just going to plow through the ancient world. No problem, right? But we're actually going to see that not everyone is a fan of Paul and this message that he brings. We're going to see that the result of of uh, gospel proclamation is actually both reception and rejection. Both as Jesus prophesied it would when he told his disciples, they rejected me. They, they were against me. If that's the case, they're definitely going to be against you as well. So Jesus said it would happen. The prophets promised that it would happen. We saw that in our passage today. And we're seeing it play out in the book of Acts as well. So Paul shows up at this new city and his sermon is the gospel, the good news for a specific people group, for the Jews and for the God-fears, people who were worshiping the God of the Old Testament who had kind of converted to Judaism. And the gospel for these people in this particular city of Antioch. And what Paul does is he starts off knowing his audience, starts off by saying everything you hold dear and you love and that you uh, believe is true. Everything in the Old Testament is actually pointing ahead to this guy. The fulfillment of all these things. The, the, the promise, all the promises that we received as a people group in the Old Testament are fulfilled in this man, Jesus Christ. Everything that we've been anticipating and hoping for and longing for is coming in this man, Jesus Christ. He knows that these people, this, this Jewish context, they believe all these things. They believe the Old Testament. So he builds on that common knowledge and flies through a summary of the Old Testament, picking certain things that he thinks will be persuasive or to show how Jesus is the point of all these prophecies, these promises, these types, and these hopes that this Jewish group of people would believe in. And Paul ends his summary of their history by calling to his ethnic family, to see that God's plan of salvation has now come through Jesus. He pleads with them. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. And a few verses later, he says, And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, and how has he fulfilled these promises? By raising Jesus. He says, what you have always longed to see, what you have put your hope in, what you have wanted to come, has now come in Jesus Christ. And Paul continues his argument by arguing that it's not just coincidence that Jesus fulfills all these things that he has listed. It's not that Jesus might be the Savior because it he kind of lines up with these prophecies and he kind of looks like David and he is from David's line and the seed of Abraham. But rather he says that God proves that Jesus is this awaited Messiah, this rescuer king. God's plan of salvation, he proves that it is Jesus by raising him from the dead, which was also prophesied about. So God's promise to the Jewish people is now being fulfilled to their children, the children of Abraham, by raising Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the linchpin that proves that he is who he said he is. It's not just a coincidence that he kind of looks like the future kings and prophets and priests of old and that his life and his birth and his death look just like dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament. It is Jesus' resurrection that proves that he is the one that the Old Testament was pre predicting, anticipating, prophesying about, foreshadowing. Paul continues his argument by showing how Jesus is actually a true offspring of King David and how he succeeded when King David failed. And not only that, but Paul preaches that Jesus is a greater Savior King than the greatest Savior King of all of Israel's history, King David. In verse, four, or verse 34, Paul argues, he says, And as for the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, God has spoken in this way. 
I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David, quoting from Isaiah 53. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So what Paul is doing here is actually really common in our culture right now. We do, we do it all the time, right? We ask, who is the greatest of all time? Who is the GOAT? Okay, and it comes up like this. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron? Or maybe, if you're not into sports, maybe this is the one you argue a lot about. Which is the greatest Ghostbusters, the original or the remake? I would definitely vote the remake, but um, I probably just lost a lot of your respect by uh, saying that. But Paul's doing the same thing. He's arguing, he's saying, it's no contest. If we're arguing between King Jesus and King David, it's King Jesus. He is the greatest of all time. Between the two, David saw corruption. King Jesus did not see corruption. David stayed dead, but Jesus is now alive. King David's body is decaying, and it's now, it's now dust in some tomb somewhere, whereas King Jesus' body didn't decay. King David right now is dead. But King Jesus is alive. But Jesus is not just a greater king because he's alive, whereas King David is dead. But there's even more to that, that he argues. Paul reminds his, his audience that God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who would do all my will. So you maybe know that in the, in the Old Testament, God actually describes King David as this, a man that is after his own heart, a man that will do his will. But Jesus is the even greater king who actually did have the same heart as God the Father, who literally was God, God in the flesh, and was completely unified, had the exact same heart as the Father, even more so, way more so than King David and even greater than King David, Jesus actually perfectly did the will of the Father. As he denied himself, he denied his own wants and needs, submitting to the Father's will, and went to the cross to die in the place of rebellious and guilty humanity. And even though David was a man after God's own heart, and even though King David did do God's will, he was still a slave to sin. If you guys know King David's story at all, you know that he was a messed up guy. He had some serious, serious sin in his life. And despite fighting against it, he was a slave to it. He always returned to it. Even though, as the greatest king of Israel's history, even though King David brought great freedom and wealth and flourishing and safety and prosperity to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, even though that was true, the tyranny of sin and death still ruled, both over the entire kingdom as well as inside of David's own heart. Although King David's rule in many ways was actually the pinnacle of Israel's history, the problems of sin and death and separation from our Creator and God were only partly being taken care of in this great king and through the law of Moses. So even though King David and the law of Moses were, were good things in some ways given to the Jewish people, they were still not the final answer, nor were they the ultimate solution. So Paul ends his sermon. He pleads with his ethnic brothers to see how the law and King David, the prophets, the priests, and the kings were just a placeholder, were just kind of the solution just for a time, but now the true solution has come. He pleads with them to see the beautiful, powerful freedom that comes not through earthly kings or through the law of Moses, but that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 38, he pleads with them. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, not through the law, not through King David, but that through this man, Jesus Christ, 
forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. So I'm sure this was scandalous, right? I'm sure the people that are listening to this are saying, whoa, you're speaking ill of the law of Moses? You're speaking ill of King David, the greatest king we have ever seen? But he's crystal clear. He says freedom, he says forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. And forgiveness comes through, or freedom comes through Jesus Christ. Freedom from everything that the law of Moses could not give you freedom for. Which makes you probably wonder, then what is the point of the law? If the law doesn't really give forgiveness of sin, if the law really doesn't bring about freedom, what, what is the point of the law? Which is a great question. This same guy, Paul, wrote many letters back to these churches that he planted. And we'll look at a few of them where he actually unpacks this theology a little bit. Where it helps us see the, the point of the law. Now, it wasn't ultimately to bring freedom and to, begin, and to begin and to give freedom from sin. But rather, these three things, and, and even more, we're just going to look at three. So what was the point of the law? What did the law actually do? One thing it did is it showed us that we were sinners. It showed us that we were broken, that we were evil in our core, that we could not live purely and righteously. We could not follow God wholly. Romans 3.20, Paul writes, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So by working really hard to follow the law, no one will be made justified. No one will be innocent. No one will be pure. We can't follow the law enough to be justified. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So one thing the law does is it tells us that we are sinful. It gives us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways for us to look in the mirror and realize, oh, I thought I was kind of good, but I realized I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done these things perfectly, my motives have been wrong, I have been selfish and, and prideful and evil. So the law showed us that we are sinners, which is a great thing because we need to know it. It also showed us that we're insufficient to fight against sin on our own. We cannot solve the problem by ourselves. Galatians 3, Paul writing to another church, he writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and then do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So no one is justified before God through following the law. No one is perfect. No one is innocent. No one is righteous by following the law before God. And rather, right before that, we read, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. So if you're not following all of the law, every single law, all the time, we are under a curse. So the law shows us that we are sinners, shows us that we can't fix the problem by ourselves, and it shows us that our sin is not just getting us a little bit. It's not just uh, something that comes and goes and is just a tiny problem that we need to fix. But Jesus tells us that we are slaves to our sin. In John 8, Jesus tells us, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if you sin, Jesus and Paul in the New Testament tell us that you're enslaved to it. You are imprisoned by your sin. That you can't stop. Maybe you can stop for a little bit, but you eventually will return to it. We are without hope by ourselves. Some of you today in this room, you get that. Okay, everything I just said in your mind, you're saying, yeah, that's right. That's my story. That's my heart. I know that's me. Because you're struggling with the same sin over and over again. You know your history. You know your past. You know your heart. You know your desires. And so I don't really have to convince you much that you are a sinner. But there's also people in this room that are saying, yeah, you and Chris, you're just so hard on us. 
you don't really know me. I'm not that bad. Like, have you met my family? Have you met my roommates? Have you met my neighbors on next door? Like, I am the best uh, compared to all of them. I'm not really that bad. And many of us are tempted to believe that. But we are all guilty. Remember, sin is not just actions, but it's also things we can't see. Things like our thoughts and things like our motives, right? Even our motives. Why are you doing good deeds or why are you not doing bad deeds? One of my pastors uh, told me as an arrogant 18-year-old, this was in his sermon, I was listening to it, he said um, something to the extent of, I, I don't know if I've ever had a purely pure or a completely pure motive in my whole life. Like even when I'm doing good deeds, even when I'm loving someone sacrificially, my family, my kids, my neighborhood, my church, even when I'm doing something really great, are my motives pure? Or am I just doing it because it'll, like, it'll make me look good in front of them? Or that they'll be nice to me in return? Or that I know God is watching, even if no one else is, so he'll be a little more pleased with me and bless me a little bit more? Or if nothing else, I'm doing something good because I know it makes me feel good, right? So when we realize sin is not just actions, it's not just murder and adultery and, and theft, but it's also things on the inside about being selfish, being arrogant, being prideful, being self-focused, being lustful. It's my motives, and it's also my thoughts too. We realize just how deeply that sinful nature is wrapped around our DNA, in our hearts, and our minds, and our motives. So that's the bad news, right? This is the bad news. The law brings up the bad news. We are sinners. We can't fix the problem by ourselves, and we are imprisoned by this. We are slaves to this. The book of James tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law, let's say you kept all hundreds and hundreds of the Old Testament laws, yet fails just in one point, we're still guilty. We're still sinners in need of a Savior. So that's the bad news. But there's also good news. Great news. Unlike David, or unlike the law, Jesus actually can bring freedom. True freedom from sin. And he can bring forgiveness. So Jesus is also greater than David because now in Christ, we can actually have true freedom. Not just freedom from the Philistines or freedom from heavy taxes by Babylon, but true freedom against sin. In Christ, we now have freedom from the guilt of sin. So in Christ, now we're no longer guilty, but we're innocent. We have freedom from the guilt of sin. But we also have freedom from the power of sin. In Christ, we're no longer imprisoned. We're no longer slaves to it. We're no longer shackled by it. We no longer have to return back to the sin. We have hope. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death in our place and the new life he gives us when we trust in him that naturally gives us spiritual fruit. When we think about this, when we meditate on it, sing about it, study it, it changes our hearts. And the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us so that we actually naturally, with pure motives, want to worship God and want to love others. Not so that we can gain something or manipulate people or look good, because, but because we just can't help it. If God has been so good to us, we naturally want to share that with others. In Christ, we can now actually be selfless. Christ is making us humble through his spirit, giving us pure thoughts and good intentions. This freedom of Christ that comes through the gospel completely transforms our lives. And it is great news. It is world-changing news. It is life-altering news for us. But the reality is this gospel, this good news, is both received and it is also rejected. And we see that in our passage today. Even though nearly the whole city turns out the next week saying, what are these guys preaching? This is amazing news. Even though nearly the whole city comes out the following Sabbath, jealousy leads many in the city to revile, to insult, and to begin to persecute and, and create opposition for Paul and Barnabas, and even teaching against the good news that they 
our teaching. And this is always the case when the gospel is preached. God promises that his Holy Spirit, uh, and when his gospel is spread, it will not go out void. That spiritual fruit will happen. Salvation will come. And there will also be much rejection. This is always the case when the gospel is preached. It happened to Jesus, right? God in flesh, literally doing miracles, healing people, touching them, looking them in the eyes, and they still reject him, right? If that's going to happen with our Savior, it's going to happen with his followers and his church. It happened in Acts. It's going to happen in our lives as well. People will reject this gospel. But, but listen to this. Listen to God's love for us, his patience with us. Even though God knew that we would reject him, he knew that he would reject his son and his son's rescue plan that would come through his death. God forever warned us against that rejection. All throughout the Old Testament, we saw Paul pick up in a prophecy from the Old Testament warning people against this rejection. Paul tells his audience, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said about you in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes a sober warning from the prophet Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. But many of the Jews in Pisidian Antioch rejected the gospel, even though God had first brought his covenant to the Jewish people. And now God is fully sending his spirit and salvation to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people after their rejection. Paul picks up on this. Verse 36, he says, uh, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, first to this Jewish context. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And we'll see this throughout the book of Acts. The gospel not staying just in Jerusalem or in Israel, but going to the ends of the earth. But not only are we seeing persecution, and the rejection of the gospel here with Paul and Barnabas. But we're also seeing that there's great cost in planting churches. Great costs in trying to spread the gospel. Great cost in discipleship. Not only is there great spiritual and physical opposition, like we're seeing against Paul and Barnabas here, but there's also this great cost of church planting. Like we saw last week, it cost the church in Antioch a lot to send Paul, and Barnabas. And we see it just in general as we preach the gospel here in our city and, and, and disciple people and try to uh, spread the gospel. The cost of discipleship is great. As Jen Oshman reminds us, as Christ's followers, we go to where he leads. We do what he asks. Even if it's dangerous, even if our family faces opposition, even if we lose our reputation, our retirement savings, our relatability. In the church in Antioch, we saw last week that sent these guys out, Paul and Barnabas, we see that they had to lose two leaders in their church, two fathers in their faith. Remember, that church was young. They were all young believers in a young church, just a few years old. But they had to send their leaders. And on top of that, the resources that it would take for them to send this church planting team hundreds and hundreds of miles across the ancient world would be huge. The church sacrificed greatly in order to plant churches and to spread the gospel. And the last cost that we saw just briefly mentioned here, Luke does not give us great detail in this spot right here, but we see that there's also a great cost of conflict, even abandonment within the church planting team. Last week, Pastor Chris reminded us that these Three guys of this team was sent out of Antioch, traveled hundreds of miles through rough, dangerous terrain in order to spread the gospel, to plant churches, to appoint leaders, and to move on. But for some reason, uh, which Acts doesn't bring up, 
one of, the, one of these guys in this church planning team ditches the mission. John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas and heads home. We know from other parts of the book of Acts and Paul's later letters that there was great conflict between uh, John Mark and Paul and Barnabas. Great conflict amidst this church planning team that they, they disagreed strongly and eventually split and went their separate ways. Yet we actually do see later on in the Bible that they were able to reconcile and, and be restored, which is great. But we see, in, we see here in gospel ministry that there's not only conflict and opposition from the outside, as well as on the inside, our own sin, but that there's also conflict and opposition coming from other believers. Because, spoiler alert, the church is filled with sinners. We're filled with people who are still being sanctified, who are not perfect yet, as well as people who aren't believers yet, that are just uh, wrestling through doubt, are kind of wondering who Jesus is. The church is, is full of sinners. We let each other down. We make mistakes. We hurt each other. We sin against each other. Now, it doesn't excuse it. We don't want to do that. We fight against that. We try not to. But the reality is, it happens. And as we read Acts 13, we should be a little bummed because relationships that are broken within the church, it hurts. It sucks to be let down and to be betrayed and to be abandoned. It's costly. Yet we should also realize that this is going to be a part of our ministry as well. Our ministry as a church, our ministry as community groups, as, as, as friends, as families. If it happened to Jesus, if Jesus received opposition, betrayal by his friends, relationship breakdown, right, within his followers, as well as here in Acts 13 with Paul and Barnabas, as well as in the rest of the New Testament, then we are going to experience that as well. So when there arise, arises conflict, hurt, and sin, within our local church, within our community groups, within our families, within our friendships, we can know that even though it's really tough and it's not fun, it is normal. We don't have to completely lose hope when conflict and opposition arises or when people even go their separate ways or when people can no longer work together. And the reason that we don't lose hope is because, first of all, like we said, it's normal, okay? still is really hard, but it happened to Jesus, to Paul and Barnabas, the rest of the early church. It's normal. It's going to happen. But the second reason we don't lose hope is because it's God's plan. The Spirit's power and Jesus' gospel cannot and will not be stopped. Does the Bible end right here? Does the book of Acts end right here? The Spirit had this great plan to send the gospel across the ancient world, and they started but then they had a big fight and they split the end. No, it doesn't. Even amidst this great conflict, Paul and Barnabas really are abandoned, but the Spirit continues to move and doesn't let human sin, doesn't let pettiness, doesn't let opposition stop the gospel from spreading. The gospel does not go void. Rejection is not the only response. The cost is worth it. And Paul and Barnabas spread the gospel, and it now moves on to the Gentiles. So we don't just see gospel rejection, we see gospel reception as well. Not only did some Jews believe, but many, many Gentiles believed as well. So Paul and Barnabas tell this Jewish opposition, they say, since you thrust it aside and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So, the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And look at how the Gentiles respond. When they hear this, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of God spreads amidst opposition. The word of God spreads despite persecution. The disciples are filled with joy in the Holy Spirit even though there's persecution and opposition and insults and people fighting against them. And God's plan to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth continues.
So as we leave for today, a few things for us to consider and ponder. What's our response to this gospel? This good news of Jesus Christ. Is it rejoicing like the Gentiles? Many of you in this room are Gentiles. You're not ethnically Jewish. Are you rejoicing that the gospel fully has come to you through Jesus Christ? Or are we scoffing or insulting or thinking we're kind of too good for that or just apathetic like those in our story? What is our response to the gospel? Today, Jesus invites you. He tells you, receive my forgiveness. Receive this eternal life I want to give you. Receive freedom from this sin that has enslaved you your entire life. So what is your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Secondly, stop looking to the law to give you freedom. Stop going back to the law, to rules to give you freedom from your sin. Or to stop looking to the world to give you freedom, whether it's self-help books or, or gurus or, or your own hard work or motivation. Freedom only comes through Jesus Christ. The law is impotent to give you freedom. As we saw in our passage today, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then finally, as we individually and we as a church share, good, share the good news, let's be prepared for opposition. Okay, opposition from the outside, spiritual opposition, even opposition from within. It's going to come at a cost. Spreading the gospel, making disciples, planting churches is going to be hard. It is going to come at a cost. Per- persecution and opposition is a part of our future, Hiawatha Church. But as Tony Merida reminds us and encourages us about this persecution and opposition, he says, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. But along with persevering in spite of it comes a deep joy that only comes from obedience to Jesus. So Hiawatha Church, let us go in the power of the Holy Spirit telling the nations how to find forgiveness through Christ even though it will cost us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this great news that brings us hope, that you loved us to death and back, that you freed us from the chains of sin that we can never be free from, that you give us freedom, you give us forgiveness of sin. We thank you for this great news. Help us to be like the Gentiles in this story, to not be apathetic, to not be jealous, to not think that we're too good for it, but to rejoice and to celebrate that salvation and freedom and forgiveness of sin and eternal life has come to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to believe that for the first time today or for the millionth time. In Jesus' name, amen.